0: Hey, this is Desi. We're off today, so please enjoy this encore presentation of the broadcast that originally aired on July 30th, 2021.
1: We're moving toward actual extremism because they're undermining the system that kept extremism at bay. Oh, is that what it is? The right is moving to extremism because the left is so extreme.
0: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Got it, Tucker. I got the feeling something.
1: I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering
0: how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am.
1: From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFC. Down in New Orleans on WHIV Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ Seattle's KODX Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day On the internet on the Progressive Voices channel Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing, Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from Bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the broadcast we have heard a lot of warnings of late about the dark political future for this nation unless the rise of right-wing authoritarianism can somehow be pushed back at the same time from the right propagandists there are offering an almost identical message it's the left who are uh, turning the nation into a fascist autocracy And I do not believe that both of those warnings can be correct at the same time. There is certainly more evidence. Just look at January 6th when an angry mob of right wingers fighting to reinstall a president for a second term who absolutely did not win it at the ballot box tried to stop democracy in its tracks. And, of course, the attempts to change voting laws to restrict access to the polls and to install partisan operatives in the roles of election officials to allow them to overturn results, no matter how people vote, when the Republican Party does not care for the outcome of elections. It seems the evidence is clear, at least to me, which party is actually trying to subvert democracy itself with an autocratic takeover. But ironically, the well-funded media propaganda apparatus on the right is telling its own followers, of course, the exact same thing about the left. And it does not matter whether they have to make up evidence to support their claims or whether they have no evidence at all, because on the right... The evidence is is clearly beyond the point. They gave up on evidence based reality long ago on the right. Just ask all of those who still believe that Saddam Hussein really did have weapons of mass destruction. Or those who, despite mountains of evidence, believe that climate change is a hoax by the left for a communist world takeover or something like that, Desi Doyen.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: You talk, I know. You hear from those people all the time.
0: Uh, indeed I do.
1: As a matter of fact, I received this terribly articulate uh, articulate comment uh, today at brandblog.com from someone calling herself Lori Hopkins Cavanaugh. Uh, she says, quote, Commie blog, cl- <laughs> climate hoax, Justice hoax, vax hoax, testing hoax, case hoax. See the pattern? Well, yeah, I do see the pattern, Lori. Yes, uh, yes, we do. We do. You have been so deeply and thoroughly brainwashed by right-wing authoritarian propaganda that you actually believe all of those things. And it's really, frankly, really quite sad and a bit frightening. Commie blog? Really?
0: I'm not Uh, sure she actually even knows what any of those words kind of mean, but she's brain poisoned by Fox News and right wing media.
1: Maybe blog. Maybe she knows what that word means. (laughs) Everything else, not sure she's clear on the concept. Uh, But yeah, that is what they tell them on on Fox and now uh, by actual Republican elected officials as well, who you'll hear regarding, you know, describing Democrats as communists. So, you know, if they hear it, if they hear it on Fox or they hear it from a Republican elected official, that is good enough. No evidence needed, even as the blog item, by the way, that Lori was commenting on was my show posting uh, about two weeks ago, warning that the clown show audit in Maricopa County, Arizona, was likely to make it more difficult to carry out real post-election audits in the future when there actually is Evidence about questionable election results and actually bashing Democrats for being so uh, afraid of doing so. And I'm not sure why she wouldn't, you know, share those concerns other than thinking, you know, logically and demanding evidence for reality is no longer really necessary among the rising authoritarian right. Today, Washington Post reports... President Trump pressed his own senior Justice Department officials in late 2020 to declare the election corrupt, even as those officials, thankfully, pushed back, warning the president that many of the claims he was hearing about voter fraud were actually false. Well, we could have told him that. That, according to handwritten notes taken by an aide who participated in those discussions, The notes were released to Congress this week and made public on Friday. Further evidence of the pressure that Trump brought to bear as he sought to throw out President Biden's election victory. Earlier in the week, the Post had reported that Trump had called his then acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, almost daily after Bill Barr had stepped down. By the way, Bill Barr stepped down in no small part because he refused to claim that the election was stolen. But uh, Trump was calling like every day to pressure Rosen to look at all sorts of nonsense claims about fraud that he was that Trump was hearing about on the internets in one December 27 conversation, according to the handwritten account taken contemporaneously as the call was happening, Rosen Uh, told Trump that the Justice Department, quote, can't and won't snap its fingers and change the outcome of the election. The president replied that he understood that, but he wanted the agency to, quote, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. That, according to the notes of the conversation taken by another senior Justice Department official, uh, Richard Donahue, So they knew Trump knew that the claims were nonsense, that there was no actual evidence that the election was corrupt. He just needed his DOJ to say that it was corrupt. And then he and his GOP henchmen in Congress would take care of the rest from there. And by the way, it sounded to my ears today very much like his pressure campaign for which he was impeached in his first impeachment trial, Uh, his, his pressure campaign on the president of Ukraine to just say that they were investigating Joe Biden and his son. It didn't actually matter if they did an investigation. Trump just needed the president of Ukraine to get to a microphone and say as much in advance of the 2020 election. And he and, yes, his Republican congressman would take it from there. Facts and evidence just no longer really matter. On the right, just saying stuff is good enough. If it comes with the imprimatur of the Justice Department or the president of the Ukraine, all the better. But if you have the stomach to dip into right wing media of any sort, from Fox News all the way down to the gutters of wingnut talk radio and podcasts, you will find a world where dozens of communist countries stole the 2020 election for Joe Biden. Never mind any actual evidence to support that. And by the way, that Anthony Fauci invented the coronavirus (laughs) for some sort of dastardly diabolical world domination scheme seriously tucker carlson said as much just last night on fox news they take it from the guy who created covid watch this now that we have a delta variant wow the guy who created covid really Never mind the claims that Fauci was, you know, wrong about covid. He didn't do enough about covid. He was somehow going to personally benefit financially from a vaccine. Now he actually created covid. He's the guy who created covid.
0: Well, wow, from zero to insanity in, in no time flat.
1: Yeah, right. That's what they do. Uh, And you can bet your bottom dollar, by the way, that that will be taken as fact by the wingnut right before this summer is out. I promise you that. Fauci created COVID. So, yeah, when, you know, when Tucker and the rest of them warn the left is pulling off an autocratic fascist takeover, a communist takeover, Both communist and fascist takeover of the United States (laughs) to help disguise the actual, real, well-evidenced right-wing autocratic fascist takeover attempt of the U.S. in this country, documented by actual laws they are passing to do exactly that, who do you think those on the right are actually going to believe? And, and what is it that they that they will actually be willing to do about it? Here's Tucker again and one of his guests a few months ago suggesting that they have no choice but to install a right wing authoritarian in order to answer to the left's fascism, never mind the lack of evidence for any such claims.
2: I think you make a really solid point about the sadness and the powerlessness that people feel in the face of this and at some point people are going to say, why should I follow the rules? Why should I be a good citizen if they don't have to follow the rules? I mean, things kind of break down at some point, don't they? Well, they will break
1: down. They are breaking down, Tucker. I, I've said this before, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm worried that I'm right. The right is going to pick a fascist within 10 to 20 years because right. they're not going That's to right. be the only one, the only ones on the outs. There's 60, 70 million of us. We're not a tiny minority. And if we're going to be all treated like criminals and all subject to every single law, while Antifa, Black Lives Matter guys go free, and Hunter Biden goes free, then the right's going to take drastic measures. And it's not about Hunter Biden and his drug use. Nobody cares that guy was and booger sugar exactly. lines off European hookers on the weekend. It's about justice yes. that he's never held accountable for. And none of the Bidens are, but you would be, Tucker, and so would I. That's so well put, and you're absolutely right. We're moving toward actual extremism because they're undermining the system that kept extremism at bay. And I, I don't think we can say that enough. I'm so glad that you just said it.
0: Wait, so so the right, he just said the right will take fascist measures because the left is going to make them? That's we, what they're saying. You're calling us Nazis, so we're going to have to act like Nazis, I guess. Is that what he's saying? That's
1: what they're saying. They're they're, they're treating them. The left is already Nazis. The left are, are Nazis. They're doing all sorts of terrible things. They call so us Nazis, so they they we're going to have, have to they have no it. choice but to become Nazis, to become autocrats on the right. That is the argument that he seems to be making pretty clearly there. And, you know, never mind the reasons, never mind the facts, they're good to go. It's your fault if you don't like the fact that they are autocratic. They are going to have no choice but to elect someone in the next 10 years, never mind the guy who just got out of office. But, you know, sometime down the road, it's going to have to be an autocrat. Now, on the other hand, if the right actually is... Attempting an autocratic takeover of the country. What are those on the left going to do about it? First step, I believe, is understanding if it's really happening or not, looking at actual evidence, looking at actual reality. I know that's not, you know, in vogue over on the right, but I hope folks on the left actually want to look at the evidence And there are a lot of well-respected, not crank voices out there, but a lot of well-respected voices warning about exactly that, warning about the rise of right-wing autocracy. And, uh, you know, they're coming from from both uh, whatever is uh, is left of the not insane right and from the left, these warnings. In Bryn Tannehill's new book, American Fascism, she cites George W. Bush's former speechwriter, David Frum, who argues, quote, If conservatives become convinced they cannot win democratically, they will not abandon conservatism. They will reject democracy. And that's coming from George Bush's guy warning about that. And of course, we're seeing actual evidence of that all across the country as these new laws are enacted in GOP-controlled states to not only make it harder for Democratic-leaning voters to vote, but they are also enacting laws that make it easier to remove bipartisan election officials and replace them with partisan operatives who are then given the right to simply overturn election results that they do not like. Go back and listen to my conversation just last week with the now former Morgan County, Georgia Board of Elections member Helen Butler, a longtime voting rights champion in Georgia, who, after serving 10 years on the board in Morgan County, was summarily removed at the end of June by the county's partisan board of supervisors after the governor signed a new law allowing them to do so. That despite her having not a single mark or violation on her record. The GOP is subverting democracy in the U.S. As the late Republican Senator John McCain's own former campaign manager warned this week at Twitter, where he said, uh, quote, The pro-democracy coalition is sleepwalking into the 2022 election. And he said the stakes could not be higher. Well, I consider myself part of the pro-democracy coalition. Coalition, and I certainly don't want to be sleepwalking into next year's election. But maybe even I need a wake up call. Bryn Tannehill, author of American Fascism How the GOP is Subverting Democracy, joins us next on the broadcast for such a call. I'm Brad Friedman. and thanks.
0: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The late John McCain's former campaign manager turned never Trumper turned now former Republican Steve Schmidt Has a way with words. His words this week in a Twitter thread served as a somewhat chilling warning as shared with me by a journalist friend of mine. And I believe they're worth sharing with you before my guest joins me today to discuss this warning and similar ones that she details in her new chilling book, American Fascism, how the GOP is subverting democracy. I have no idea what she's talking about. Steve Schmidt writes uh, in the thread, Donald Trump will be the GOP nominee in 2024. The 2022 and 2024 elections will decide if democracy survives in this country. It is as simple as that, he says. Donald Trump repeatedly asked advisors to cancel the 2020 election because of covid. He wanted the U.S. military to open fire against peaceful protesters. He is profoundly dangerous. His movement is profoundly dangerous. Trump has embraced and embodied extremist groups that include neo-Nazis, white supremacists, fascist thugs, violent militias, anti-Semites and conspiracy loons. Trump's extremist movement is sustained by donations from some of the largest companies and richest individuals in America. It is fueled by a propaganda lie machine that is hubbed by Fox News and sustained by a cacophony of lies and insanities that are spewed forth by lesser propagandists on talk radio, newspapers, streaming services, etc., Trump and his lieutenants like Mitch McConnell, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Senator Ted Cruz, Congress members Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gaetz, Jim uh, Jim Jordan, Elise Stefanik, Senator Josh Hawley. Fox's Tucker Carlson have made their intentions perfectly clear, he writes. They have become faithless to the republic. They have chosen power over patriotism and in doing so have desecrated the sacrifice of every American patriot who has ever fought to preserve and expand liberty. Delusions around who these people are and what they will do if they take political power in this country again are just... As crazy and maybe more so than the worst of the anti-vaccine insanity. We have seen we have no excuses, he says, with regard to understanding the danger, corruption, lying, malice and bad faith of Trump and his movement. American democracy won't be lost in a coup or insurrection, he argues. It will be lost in an election where the autocrats and fascists uh, that have screamed their hostility to our highest ideals from the rooftop get more votes than the pro-democracy side. There will always be more people in America who reject autocracy and Trump than support him. The question is whether there are going to be enough to fight back against this or not. Two things can be true, he argues. Joe Biden is a good man and doing a great job as president. Donald Trump and his fascist movement have had a very good seven months. They aren't former anythings. They are clear and present danger. The pro-democracy coalition is sleepwalking, he says, into the 2022 election, and the stakes couldn't be higher. What will we tell our grandchildren? I suppose the truth will be this. We lost our republic to the people who told us they despised it, because the fools who should have defended it didn't believe they were telling the truth. Well, that is obviously very grim, and I'm not sure I agree with all of it, but Schmidt has been one of the uh, clarion voices during the Trump years, and I think it's a mistake to look the other way, no matter how dark his warning, and no matter how much I may or may not uh, disagree with him, or perhaps just want to disagree with him. Perhaps I am one of those fools who didn't listen closely enough to the people who told us that those Schmidt cited and many more despised the republic. Or maybe I simply place too much faith in those who actually do love the country and believe in democracy. Better people than me have made similar mistakes in modern civilization's tragic, not too distant past, I believe. Joining us now for perhaps a bit of a reality check is someone who I suspect may agree with Schmidt uh, or at least much of Schmidt's warning there. But we will find out. Bryn Tannehill is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and the Air Force Institute of Technology with degrees in computer science and operations research. She is a naval aviator who did four deployments to locations like the Adriatic, Middle East and the North Atlantic. After leaving active duty, she has continued to work in defense research as an advocate, writer, and researcher on LGBTQ civil rights issues and policy, and is the author of the chilling, if important, new book, American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. Bryn Tannehill with uh, trepidation, I think. Welcome to the broadcast.
3: Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me on.
1: Uh, My pleasure, I think. Uh, uh, Schmidt's dark warnings there uh, sound not unlike uh, those in your book, American Fascism. And even though you offered uh, just after the 2016 election of Trump, as you also detail, uh, similar concerns about Trump. I, I want to get your response today to to Schmidt's warning there. But let me start very quick, quickly with just the basis of the book itself, which I, I've just started to crack open. Uh, in its description, it's noted Trump is out of the White House, but American democracy is on the ropes and teetering on the brink of competitive authoritarianism. It's a phrase you also used in some of our off-air conversations, Bren What exactly is competitive authoritarianism, as you uh, define and refer to it there?
3: So it's been called competitive authoritarianism or competitive autocracy. Uh, some of the other names that have been used is, are illiberal democracy or, as Putin calls it, managed democracy. And it's a type of government that's emerged since the end of the Cold War, which is essentially you have a democracy or Mm -hmm. something close to a democracy and then one party wins an election and then changes the rules such that the incumbent party can essentially never be removed from power Um, There's still elections and they're still very often free in the sense that anybody can vote and Mm -hmm. there's not just one person on the ballot but the election through various means has been rigged such that the playing field has been so tilted Mm that you can't remove the incumbent party from power. Um, And you can see this in Hungary. Mm -hmm. uh, is probably the best recent example, uh, where they have managed to gerrymander the country sufficiently such that, I believe, Orban won one election with only 23% of the vote or 23% approval Mm. and still managed to capture a supermajority of the legislature. Um, Another example would be in Poland, where they... uh, the uh, Law and Justice Party uh, won, and then they rewrote the rules so that the Supreme Court could only overturn the legislature if they had a two-thirds majority, but they also expanded the court from 10 to 15 mm-hmm. and put five people who were rubber stamps on the court, right? Mm-hmm. So, which means you can never overturn the legislature. Um, and that's that's the kind of things that you end seeing in, the, in the competitive autocracies, where it's theoretically democratic, but not actually in practice because you have single-party rule essentially permanently.
1: And that's certainly what we're seeing now in the uh, in the states around the country where they are doing exactly that, changing the rules. We cover that a lot on this show. So it's you can still call it democracy, but it doesn't always act like democracy, at least not in effect, as people are trying to vote. And then, uh, as, as we have been warning, uh, changing the rules to essentially overturn election results entirely, no matter... No matter who ends up voting or how they end up uh, voting. We'll we'll talk about elections in a bit, though. But uh, you suggest somewhat ironically, Bryn, uh, that it may have been COVID that actually saved us from the, uh, quote, autocratic breakthrough of a second Trump term, which would almost certainly have guaranteed a fall into permanent minoritarian single-party rule. Do you really think that, if, if not for the virus, that we would have been looking at a second Trump term at this point?
3: Well, Donald Trump genuinely believes that he lost uh, the, or he genuinely blames it on COVID. And I think that, to a certain extent, COVID exposed the inadequacies and incompetence of the Trump and callousness of the Trump administration and of certain Republican leaders. Remember, we had Republican leaders telling us that Grandma would be proud to die for the economy, right, Mm -hmm. Um, in -hmm. Texas, of course. Yeah. And it probably cost him just enough Mm -hmm. in terms of having an economy that wasn't super and having made a a lot of people very, very unhappy with him and how the pandemic was handled. Mm -hmm. When you get down to it, it was only about 44,000 votes scattered across three states. Mm That allowed Joe Biden to win yep. um you could very easily make a case that if COVID had not happened, people would not be, have been dissatisfied enough in those three states, and that that, that it would have flipped yep. one won those three swing states, and that would have that would have put Trump in, in power again. Yeah. And he would have continued the assault on both the hard and soft guardrails of democracy.
1: I think I think a case can also be made that he was so incompetent, uh, at least at the job of uh, presidenting, that uh, had he handled uh, covid in only a slightly different way, I think he might have won in a walk uh, last November. I mean, there was, you know, the American people love to rally around the flag. They love to rally around a president. Uh, You know, during uh, times of crises. And uh, had he been really smart enough to use that to his advantage, it's somewhat surprising that he wasn't, uh, to be honest. You know, it seems like he would have won in a walk uh, that that could have actually helped him. But apparently he's not bright enough. I don't know. Uh, Bryn, in in working on the book, you, you have told me that you sort of went back into your uh, work in the military as an investigator of shoot downs uh, to sort of review the last at least four or five years sort of holistically the way the NTSB might review an airliner crash site. Explain what you mean by that and why you felt that this was the appropriate way to investigate what has happened here in what is now modern-day America?
3: So actually, my book actually traces back um, some of the roots of the modern Republican Party all the way back to slavery and the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, If I really had to put a moment on it, I would put it in 1845, when Northern and Southern Baptists split over uh, slavery, and Mm -hmm. the Southern Baptist Convention was founded as a theological excuse to justify slavery. Um, But it traces forth from there, all the way through the Civil Rights Movement, through the moral majority in the Newt Gingrich years, uh, to kind of give a historical sense of where this came from. Mm -hmm. But it it tends to look, it looks holistically at a lot of the different factors, including the media, the loss of faith in science, uh, how white evangelicals are different, how the system has been manipulated, looks at the role of wealth inequality. And the way I translate this to being something like an ntsb investigation is that i wanted to look at as many of the driving factors behind where we are today as possible you know from looking at the history of the airframe that might date back 40 or 50 years to the pilot training to maintainer training to maintenance practices to what the pilots had for breakfast Mm -hmm. right you look at all these different things and you try and isolate the ones that contributed to the mishap, mm-hmm. right, and that's what my book tries to do. Is it almost reads in some ways like a mishap report mm. on the U.S. And but unfortunately, sometimes when you have mishaps, you conclude that there's no way to prevent further mishaps because the flaws within the system are so fundamental to the system.
1: Well, is there any sort of equivalent, as you see it, of an NTSB here officially? In other words, some official body, uh, you know, which is ultimately able to sort of definitively detail what has gone wrong and what needs to be done to avoid it in the future, or does it fall to... You know, unofficial bodies like authors like you, yourself, journalists like me and and sort of fingers crossed that enough people get the message that, you know, momentum builds among our voters and institutions uh, to make the necessary changes needed to continue to uh, safely fly this unsafe democracy in the future. Just to continue the metaphor there.
3: So. There are very few organizations pointing out what needs to be done to fix it. There are organizations such as the V-DEM project, the V-Democracy project out of Sweden, which Mm -hmm. tracks democracy globally, and the Economist Intelligence Unit, which also tracks democracy, noting that the United States has fallen drastically in terms of rankings within democracies around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And from authors themselves, many of them have suggested solutions. Uh, economic, social, political—the um, problem is is that the system is broken. That in Chapter Eleven of my book, it traces through what you would have to do to implement a solution. But the problem is is that it is so easy to thwart solutions via yeah. Congress, via the presidency, via the courts um, that it's really unlikely that a lot of the necessary solutions could ever happen. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, it only takes. N- Senators representing only 19% of the American population can block virtually any legislation that they want to in the Senate.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, and one of the efforts that we do see, obviously, to try to figure out what's going on uh, is uh, this January 6th commission, a committee, I should say, a select committee in the U.S. House that has just come together um, and, and held their first hearing. Uh, you know, they claim they want to you know, walk through every minute by minute uh, email conversation that happened in the White House to try to figure out what happened on January 6th so we can avoid it in the future. But, you know, I've spoken with the terrorism and extremism experts on this program. They have warned that January 6th, far from being a failed coup, as many see it, well, actually serve as an inspiration to the authoritarian right in the months uh, and years ahead. That that actually caught me by surprise when I started hearing that, because one would think that, you know, they might be ashamed of what happened. The insurrection didn't work. There's hundreds facing jail time now uh, who might regret what they did. But I also note that you seem to compare it to the failed Beer Hall putsch by uh, Hitler and the Nazis back in 1923, which also did not succeed in overthrowing the government uh, during the uh, Weimar Republic. It also resulted in arrests, including Hitler for treason. But then it did serve to uh, uh, propel the Nazi movement forward. What lessons should we draw from that as you see it? And how is it analogous to the January 6th attempted insurrection?
3: So I... In my book, I compare the the January 6th insurrection to both the Beer Hall Putsch and the March on Rome. So if the March on Rome had the incompetence of the January 6th insurrection, that's kind of what you'd get. Republicans here have noted that there's absolutely no consequences to it so far for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've also noted that they can make bank by uh, lionizing um, the protesters. They are treating... uh, Abby, forget her last name—the one that was shot by the uh, the Capitol Police and died—they've mm-hmm. turned her into a modern horse, horse vessel. If you're familiar with that analogy from uh, Germany, mm-hmm. um, that they, they are flying, you know, they are you know, flying the bloody shirt. Uh, Elise Stefanik did it just yesterday. Um, and what what Republicans can take away from this is that even when there is a naked attempt at a coup. Mm-hmm. It costs them nothing if they attempt mm. to steal democracy by simply overturning an election. There's going to be even less consequences.
1: That's your uh, lesson. And that was uh, Ashley Babbitt, by the way, who they've uh, l- lionized you. as a as a martyr here. You you mentioned to me via email uh, that on on Tucker Carlson we see guests proclaiming fascism. And authoritarianism as inevitable because the radical left has gone too far. So the irony here, it seems to me, is that uh, Tucker and the other Fox propagandists, y- you know, they look at, at, at January 6th not as a, you know, autocratic takeover or, a uh, you know, overthrowing democracy. They look at it as. Saving democracy from the threat of authoritarianism from the left in order to justify their own calls for a what I, you and I, I see clearly as a very real authoritarian and uh, fascist rule. Am I, am I reading that correctly? And, and is there historic precedent for that as well, basically claiming you are fighting off uh, fascism and authoritarianism in order to implement it?
3: Well, absolutely. That was the point of the Reichstag fire, getting blamed on the communists, that they were saving Germany from the communists. And if you look at the Republican movement as it has evolved, particularly the Christian right, um, as early as the early 2000s, you have um, leaders like um, Paul Weyrich, who founded the Heritage Foundation, admiring Putin in Russia Mm -hmm. and making statements to the effect that, well, yeah, it's not great that he killed democracy in Russia, but what he has done with Russia makes it absolutely worth it. He has made Russia, given Russia a strong leader. He has established Christianity as the dominant influence in Russian culture. He's gone after malign liberal social influences, right? Targeting LGBT people in particular. And this is and Franklin Graham has echoed that more rate lately. We've seen Rod Dreher, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, from the American Conservative, uh, also putting. Um, Orban's Hungary and the Fidesz party on a pedestal and saying, well, yeah, okay, everything in Hungary isn't perfect, but look at what they're doing culturally, right? Mm -hmm. And Hungary is absolutely a fascist movement, and they have absolutely ended democracy there. And that's that's a a real danger, in the sense that we have a party that regards democracy as a hindrance to their goals, and their goals of establishing a particular kind of country is more important than the democracy itself.
1: And you mentioned uh, your you mention of Paul Weyrich there at the uh, at the top. Uh, we There's a clip that we play all the time. We've been playing for years of him at a uh, convention, a Baptist convention I think it was, uh, evangelicals in any event, back in uh, uh, 1984. Ronald Reagan was there Wyrick, as you say, you know, sings the praises of Russia. And at the same time in this clip, he's arguing that he does not want everyone to vote, that the more people vote, the less so-called conservatives like him actually have a chance. So these these ideas do seem to go hand in hand uh, and, and not just over the past four or five years with Trump, but going back many years. In fact, Uh, It's interesting. You call out uh, the founding fathers a bit in this book uh, for believing that they had come up with a system to prevent the rise of demagogues and populists, at least to the office of president. You cite Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers, uh, writing, uh, quote, the process of election, uh, uh, the, the process of elections affords a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications? Bryn Tannehill, uh, where did the founders there uh, go so terribly wrong? What did they not foresee uh, that might occur some 250 years later? Because boy, our our process of elections certainly did not keep a, a you know a, a person who was unqualified from becoming president.
3: Well, to an extent, they never dreamed that their vision for a country would be so corrupted that you would have legislators who would overturn elections based off of lies, right? Um, and they also never dreamed that the parties would become so powerful that they would pick electors for the Electoral College, who which the Electoral College was meant to prevent people like Trump, right? Mm-hmm. It was assumed, well, these, these are good and steady men. They will certainly, you know you know, say no to a demagogue and mm-hmm. vote their consciences. And that obviously didn't happen in 2016. Uh, in fact, we got more faithless electors for Hillary Clinton than we got for um, uh, for Donald Trump. Although they you were know, making, the,
1: to be fair, they were trying to make a point. They were trying to encourage uh, the Trump electors to become faithless. But, and
3: they didn't. Yeah. And that's part of the polarization is that right. we, have, we have a group of people that are so we are so polarized and so dedicated to a party and so dedicated to the proposition that mm-hmm. power is everything. And that's something that Newt Gingrich established as a norm for the GOP, mm-hmm. that that is the dominant paradigm for the Republican Party today, power at any cost. Yep. That, that, and they they genuinely believe that what they're doing is good for the country, mm-hmm. most of them. Yeah. Um. Most of them are true believers. And that's actually the really dangerous part, because the true believers are the ones who just keep going to the next step and the next step and the sure. next step. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, we've talked about this since January 6th. If you believe that your election was stolen, if you believe that your country is, is being undermined and your democracy is gone, then it's not only your uh, it not only makes sense to want to storm the Capitol, it's it becomes your duty. To do so and i think that's how these people feel that they are patriots and you know a lot of people have been uh, sort of surprised over the past five years at uh, how quickly the uh, the right the republican party appears to have sort of acceded to right-wing authoritarianism but you know i i think many were you know surprised but they shouldn't have been if you go back to the post 9-11 days uh, and those furious supporters of George W. Bush and supporting the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, despite any evidence that there was weapons of mass destruction and so forth, this sort of angry authoritarian right. I recall it very well because they were in you know my face at that time, uh, big time those folks from back then, that angry authoritarian right, seem to me to be the exact same folks who became the angry authoritarian right today. In other words, Trump did not cause this rightward lurch. He seems to have exploited it and crafted it to his own purpose. But it has, well, I don't want to say always been there, but it has been there at least just below the surface uh, for many years now in this country. Is that fair?
3: Oh, absolutely. That's actually most of the point of, this, of the third chapter in my book. The op- the first chapter in the book is a quote by Obama basically saying that Trump is a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself, um, that, this, that this angry authoritarian streak of the Republican Party was there for years. And it was only Trump that really finally spoke to them and scooped them up and basically convinced them I'm one of you guys. I re- I reflect what you think, and that's one of the quotes in the third chapter. Is this absolute kook of a woman saying um, Trump says what I'm thinking, and this this woman thinks that you know Barack Obama is a gay Kenyan, and that Michelle Obama is transgender, and their kids were stolen from <laughs> Kenya, right?
1: Oh, um, like like that? Like they're not? All right, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Whatever.
3: Um, <laughs> um, but no, and that that he basically. Uh, figured out how to ruthlessly exploit what the base wanted and say what they wanted to hear, mm-hmm. when Republicans hadn't quite glommed onto the fact that they could be as awful as they wanted and win. And not only could they win, but it was a bonus, because if you rig the system such that the Republican can't lose, you're going to get the most outlandish Republican winning in the primary and then going on to win in the general
1: Which uh, sort of brings us back to Steve Schmidt's comments. And boy, Brent, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but I want to make sure that we uh, sort of uh, close where we uh, began here with uh, Schmidt uh, charging that Donald Trump will be the GOP nominee in 2024. He writes the 2022 and 2024 elections will decide if democracy survives in this country. It is as simple as that. Now, I'm not... Quite as sure as him that uh, Donald Trump will be the 2024 nominee, but I'm I'm not sure that it actually matters. If it's not Trump, I do believe it'll be someone in his mold, uh, but yeah. perhaps better at it, like Iran DeSantis. Uh, mm-hmm. But is is he right about the stakes of what is now coming in 2022 and 2024 that they will determine whether democracy survives in the U.S. and the bigger picture? You know that a lot of americans who are pro democracy are actually sleepwalking through that threat.
3: And i absolutely agree with him. Uh we see the republicans setting up the the uh, 2024 election such that if they don't win by the electoral college with a minority of the vote, they will simply overturn the election. They are are gerrymandering their way to a, a majorities in the house. They're likely to take back the senate in 2022. They're going to be in a position to veto the election in 2024. And if the competitive authoritarian states that I mentioned in my book are any lesson, once you pass that event horizon into competitive autocracy, nobody's ever come back. There is no roadmap to what to do for what we should do after we hit that point.
1: And that's chilling. Although I will find one uh, hopeful, anyway, hopeful flaw in in your thinking and in Schmidt's thinking. You say that you know after twenty twenty two, it'll be impossible to turn back because they will, uh, you know, be able to change the rules before twenty twenty four to prevent, you know, any Democrat from being able to win. But they can be stopped in twenty twenty two. Can they not?
3: Yes, they can. It's going to take absolutely massive turnout by Democrats. It's going to take a massive get-out-the-vote drive. It's going to take massive motivation. It's going to take a demotivated Republican base for whatever reason that they stay home. The one spark of hope I have is that without Trump on the ballot, a lot of uh, low-propensity GOP voters will stay home, and that maybe if Democrats are very, very good at essentially placing Trump on the ballot as a proxy... Um, that they can keep turnout high enough that they get, you know, an, an eight-point national turnout margin like they did in 2018. You know, that would be the one option, because here's the thing is that if Democrats go into, you know, the, uh, the January 6, 2025, with control of the House and the Senate, mm-hmm. the Republicans are going to struggle mightily to overturn the election. They're going to have to try and do it at the state level, and that's going to... Uh, make their job much more difficult. If they go in controlling the House and the Senate and they decide that they're just going to go for it, it gets very, very difficult to imagine how we stop them other than hoping that the Supreme Court that is going to have Uh at least six conservatives on it
0: Said no.
1: Good luck there. Yeah, I I just think it's important. You know, I hear a lot of people and I hear sort of in uh, Schmidt's message there that this is all a foregone conclusion, that democracy is cooked, it's over, we are heading straight, as you, you know, argue in your book, uh, towards uh, fascism. But it doesn't have to be. We're not there yet. At least I'm hoping that we can, uh, you know, change that path, that we can somehow turn off of it or reverse it Uh, very quickly. Bryn, what what is the most important thing, as you see it, that Americans can do, in fact, to avoid or change this path that you now see us on and that you are warning about here?
3: So between now and twenty twenty four, vote, get everybody out to vote, and make it very clear that we need to end to your legislators that we need to end the filibuster, pass the For the People Act and the Voting Rights Act. That's what we can do beforehand. What we can do when we when it hits the fan is make it clear to is recognize that this is no longer a democracy and at the state level refuse to accept it. Mm.
1: Do exactly what it is that the Republicans are trying to do now, uh, even though it was a legitimate election. At least there's no evidence that it was not. Washington Post's Greg Sargent says American fascism details, quote, one of the most undercovered stories of our fraught political moment. Michael Signorelli over at Sirius XM says Bryn Tannehill has written a deeply researched, searing indictment of forces in American society working through the Republican Party to destroy democracy taking us back in history showing how the gra- how the groundwork has been laid and what will happen if people across this nation don't take the threat seriously Uh, Bryn Tannehill, author of American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. Really appreciate you joining us here today. Really appreciate your book and its clarion warning. Uh, You can find Bryn on the Twitters at Bryn Tannehill, B-R-Y-N-N-T-A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L. Not an easy one to spell, but you'll find it also at BrynTannehill.com. And you can buy the book at TransgressPress.com. Bryn, really appreciate you joining us uh, today on the program. Hope you'll uh, come back in the future. Not that I'm looking forward to it.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you very much for having me on. And hopefully we can talk about all the ways I turned out to be wrong.
1: I look forward to that. That sounds great. Thank you, Bryn.
3: All right. Take care.
1: Okay, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes on the Bradcast and some, yes, more breaking news oh out boy. of the Justice Department. This is actually good news.
0: Good. It never but, stops, though. But yes, straight ahead on the
1: Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman.
2: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day more than 10,000 African-Americans marched down New York's Fifth Avenue in what is known as the Silent Parade. The protest came in the aftermath of the July 2nd East St. Louis race riot and a number of lynchings in Texas. Organized by black scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson and the NAACP, the Silent Parade protested lynchings and anti-black violence. Children led the march dressed in white. Women, who were also dressed in white, followed them. Men dressed in dark suits marched behind. It was considered the first public protest of racial violence in the United States. Alexis Newman describes the scene as the parade proceeds to Madison Square. The marchers carried banners and posters stating their reasons for the march. Both participants and onlookers remarked that this protest was unlike any other scene in the city and the nation. There were no chants, no songs, just silence. Some signs read, Mother, do lynchers go to heaven? And Mr. President, why not make America safe for democracy? Protesters hoped President Woodrow Wilson would make good on his election promises to promote rights for blacks. But Wilson took no action. In fact, he opposed anti-lynching legislation and continued segregationist policies in federal offices. In an editorial for the New York Age, James Weldon Johnson pointed out, quote, that their brothers and sisters, people just like them, were jim-crowed and segregated and disenfranchised. Franchised and oppressed and lynched and burned alive in this, the greatest republic in the world, the great leader in the fight for democracy and humanity. Labor History and Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show.
0: What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You're listening to an encore presentation of The Bradcast. We'll be back soon. Better late than never in the nick of time.
1: It
2: took so long to give me your love, but it's right on time. Welcome back
1: to The Bradcast. Brad Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Not sure it's right on time.
0: (laughs) But better late than never.
1: Yeah. The Justice Department on Friday said the Treasury Department must turn over former President Trump's long-sought tax returns to the Democratic-led House Ways and and Means Committee. The Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, or OLC, said in a memo that the Treasury Department was required to defer to the Congressional Committee. The statute at issue here is unambiguous, the OLC says in the 39-page memo. Upon written request of the chair of one of the three Congressional Tax Committees, the secretary, quote, shall furnish the requested tax information to the committee. That's written in the statute. It's clear as day. It always has been. If the committee receives Trump's tax returns now, it can examine the documents in a closed session. It could then vote to release a report to the full House, making some or all of the documents public. House Ways and Means Committee Chair Richard Neal of Massachusetts uh, first requested Trump's personal and business tax returns and related IRS documents back in 2019. He also subpoenaed former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and the head of the IRS to secure their release. The Trump administration refused to comply with the request and the subpoenas prompting the committee then to file a lawsuit. Talk about Authoritarianism, uh, (laughs) just having the Department of Justice say that, oh, no, it is fine. The the Trump OLC said, no, no, they don't have to turn it over because we say so, because we don't think it's a legitimate request. Never mind what the statute actually quite literally says. The uh, new OLC memo comes on the same day that a court filing is due in the lawsuit that was filed by the Democrats. The OLC memo notes that in June, Neal sent Treasury an updated request for Trump's tax returns, reiterating that the committee wants Trump's tax returns in order to examine how... Or if the IRS audits presidents and also states that lawmakers are interested in potential business entanglements and foreign influences on Donald Trump as they consider future legislation. The Friday memo is a reversal from the DOJ's conclusions under the Trump administration, which advised the Treasury... That uh, which advised Treasury that Neal's request lacked a legitimate legislative purpose.
0: (laughs) Yes, for no reason should Congress ever look to see if anybody is following tax laws because you know that would be terrible.
1: And you get, uh, you know, you have the executive branch deciding that the oh, the Congress what they're doing, uh, never mind them. They're a co-equal branch. Never mind they've made a request that actually. Follows the law as written by Congress, the executive branch decides Nah, it's not it's just not legitimate. We're not going to play along. Democratic lawmakers applauded the turnaround from the Justice Department. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said in a statement today, the Biden administration has delivered a victory for the rule of law. As it respects the public interest by complying with Chairman Neal's request for Donald Trump's tax returns, I applaud Chairman Neal for his dignified pursuit of the truth and the Biden administration Department of Justice for its respect for the law, which apparently the law and order president had no respect for. She says access to former President Trump's tax returns is a matter of national security, And it is. The American people deserve to know the facts of his troubling conflicts of interest and undermining of our security and democracy as president. That is all true and even more true when you consider the conversation that uh, Bryn Tannehill and I were just having that uh, Donald Trump may once again become the president or at least become a candidate for the presidency when all of this stuff is out absolutely a matter of national security.
0: And as you've mentioned it's not just Trump that is the threat here it's it's pretty much any fascistic authoritarian Republican that the Republicans decide to nominate.
1: And then they decide to ignore the specific rule of law when it comes to them as well. That's how fascism works that's what we all need to be concerned about. Yeah,
0: it's not one quick takeover thing like a coup like we see in other countries. It's slow erosion of democracy.
1: Yeah, not so slow anymore, I'm hmm. afraid. Uh, Gotta get out. My thanks to our guest Bryn Tannehill, author of American Fascism, How the GOP is Subverting Democracy. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks, Des. Mm -hmm. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated and an honor. If you missed any portion of today's show or you just want to share it with someone you know and love or hate, you can do that by stopping by bradblog.com and downloading any of the shows we have ever done for free. All of that is made possible by those of you listeners who are kind enough to help us stay on the airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters you will find me at the Brad Blog. I will see you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world.